You're listening to Mystery Still Unsolved, a podcast where we discuss unsolved mysteries, both past and present. I'm your host, Rochelle. Today, we will be discussing Lady in the Lake. Welcome back. I hope that you guys had an amazing week. I don't know about you guys, but okay. Ever since Thanksgiving, I feel like I've been in a bit of a funk lately. And it could be it's because it's getting colder where I live. It also could be that it's getting darker earlier, which I don't know about you, but that always just throws me off. It throws me off my sleep schedule. I never know what time it is. Or, and this is actually probably the most likely, I feel like way back in March, I was certain that by the end of 2020, we'd be over all of this crap or at least almost over this with like an end in sight, but you know, we're not. And I know that there are a lot of people and accounts that are attempting to put like a positive spin on all of it. And while I think that's great, I mean, I certainly don't like to dwell on the negative. This sucks. This really sucks. And I think that it's okay to say that it sucks without having to find a silver lining or talk about the lessons learned. I feel like, at least for me, that's what people do when they're looking backwards on the situation. Like you can be like, wow, that experience really sucked. I'm glad that it's over, but I did learn, you know, A, B, and C. But it's really hard, and I don't even know if it's necessary to do that while you're in the thick of it. I mean, it would be ideal to be able to do that, but I also think that it's okay to admit that this sucks and not feel guilt about admitting that. I mean, if we can't complain and vent amongst friends, then who can we complain and vent to? (laughs) Well, you can certainly complain and vent here in this space. This is our space and we make the rules. It's a judgment-free zone. Well, unless you're a murderer or a rapist, then it's not so judgment-free over here. But, you know, for the, for the majority of people that listen to this episode, <laughs> that are going to listen to this episode, this is a judgment-free zone. Um, and do you know another place where you can go that's a judgment-free zone? Um, shameless plug at mystery still unsolved on Instagram. That is the account for this very podcast. And there you can interact with myself. You can interact with other crime lovers. We discuss our theories and we have a lot of fun. So if you are an avid listener to this podcast, and I know that at least 145 of you are, because that's what the data told me. That's how many people download downloaded this episode last week. You should skedaddle over to my at Mystery Still Unsolved account because I think I only have like 49 followers on there, which always makes me super depressed. But then I only allow myself to look at the logistics like once a week because if not, I'll like become obsessive. And so because I only have 49 followers on Instagram, I'm always like, nobody's listening to this. And then I see that 145 people downloaded. So I'm like, come on, guys, join us on the Instagrams. That way I can validate myself. (laughs) Um, But today we are going to be discussing a super interesting case. So um, there's going to be a lot of stuff to talk about. So I want you guys to go to the Instagram, go to at mystery still unsolved and follow because it's really fun to engage over there. It's, I'm trying to like be more active on the account. It's just really hard for me. I feel like I kind of like was a little bit older when this whole like Instagram, Facebook thing came out. So it wasn't like really in my day-to-day life until I was about 18 or 19 years old. So it's just really hard for me to like get on Instagram and like do stories because I just feel like I'm talking about myself and that makes me feel really uncomfortable because I just feel like a narcissist, but it's weird because most of the time when I see other people on their Instagram doing it, I don't think that they're a narcissist, but for some reason I feel like I'm a narcissist when I do it. So that's probably a me problem, but I'm going to try really hard to engage and be more active on that account. So please join me over there. It will make me feel better if people are talking 
to me. So that way I feel like I'm not talking to myself. Um, but anyways, today we're going to be discussing a super interesting case, one that at the surface seems like one thing, but it might not be so cut and dry after all is said and done. There are a lot of detours in this case, and I'm going to do my best to keep everything straight for you, but let's get into it. Let's stop talking about it. Today's case is season two, episode five of Netflix's recently released Unsolved Mysteries. It's titled Lady in the Lake. The episode begins overlooking a gorgeous Gothic-inspired church across the street from a beautiful lake at sunset. And at first, I thought this beautiful scene was like in Maine or some coastal city. Um, so I was seriously surprised to learn that St. Paul's Catholic Church, which is the hub of this entire episode, this entire case, if you will, is actually located in Gross Point Farms, Michigan, which if you're like me and you've never been to Michigan and you're not familiar with the Michigan area at all, um, Gross Point Farms is a suburb of Detroit. Okay, so I've never been in Detroit, but I've heard all of these stories and like you hear about it on the news and that ever since GM left that it's like a dying city and it's run down and it's dangerous. And, you know, maybe that is the case for the downtown area itself. But this place, Gross Point Farms, you would not think that it was anywhere near Detroit. It is beautiful. It looks like a quaint town that you'd see like on a postcard from Europe or something. So now I certainly wouldn't want to live there, but that has nothing to do with it being Michigan or being cold or being so close to Detroit. And it has everything to do with the incompetence and arrogance of the police department at the time that this disappearance took place. Without getting ahead of myself for now, I'll just say that the police department there doesn't really seem like they have their citizens' best interests in mind. They seem like they have a let's wrap this up because there's a delicious spaghetti dinner waiting for me at home state of mind going on. Um, Joanne Matuk Romaine is described as a social lover of routine, overly cautious, and stylish as hell. And that kind of sounds like me a little bit. <laughs> I'm super cautious. Ask anybody. Super cautious. On January 12th, 2010, Joanne's car was found abandoned in the driveway of her local church. It's called St. Paul's. It was late at night and it was the only car in the parking lot and there didn't seem like there was a good reason for it to be out there all alone like that in the darkness. Their services had long been over um, there was no like event or party going on. It was just a lone car in the parking lot. So an officer who was driving by, um, stopped to look at it. An officer who is being recorded for what appears to be a deposition of some kind, perhaps like an internal affairs type thing discusses the initial scene with us. And this officer, when he came on the screen, both my husband and I looked at each other and we were like, Tom Selleck. He literally looks just like Tom Selleck. He is like a real man's man, if you will. Both Brian and I agree that Tom Selleck and Harrison Ford are literally the manliest men to ever walk the planet. And although I probably won't agree with you, if you feel so inclined, feel free to shoot me a name of a guy who you think is manlier than those two. It's not going to happen because a man like that doesn't exist, but you can certainly try. So anyways, this officer says that he approached the parked vehicle and saw a purse inside. He began to comb the area. He crossed the street to a median type thing that separates the road um, from the lake. And in that embankment, he found handprints and butt prints. So it looked like someone had been sitting in the snow, perhaps. And then they saw some footprints that might have indicated to them that someone had gone out into the lake, but he says he's unclear and uncertain. He really can't remember. So um, the police called search and rescue because they truly believed that someone had either slid into the lake, perhaps intentionally or perhaps unintentionally, but they thought they might be able to save whoever was in there. Like he didn't seem like it seemed like a fresh scene is what he's making it seem like. So around seven o'clock that night, we learned that Joanne had attended a church service, but now it's 920. 
about two hours later and Joanne's adult daughter, Michelle Romaine, was just getting ready for bed when she saw a car come around the corner and park in front of her house. At first, she thought it was her mother, but when she looked out, it was actually um, two police officers. So one of the officers said, we found your mom's car abandoned in the church and um, is she missing? And Kelly, Joanne's other daughter, began to call her phone immediately, but discovered that it had been turned off. It was just going straight to voicemail. Joanne and her husband did not get along and they were currently separated, but her three adult children still lived at home. I think Michelle was 29. Kelly was like 25 and the youngest Michael, who's not in this um, episode. uh, He's, he was about 20 at the time. So the three children immediately began calling everyone that their mother knew to see if maybe she was out with friends. Like she did go to this church a lot and perhaps maybe one of her friends at the church had asked if she wanted to go get a drink or go get dinner afterwards. But after calling everyone, no one knew where she was. Michelle decided at that point that she was going to call her uncle because her uncle and her mother were like really, really close. And she said, hey, Uncle John, two police officers just came over and said that my mom is missing. So he immediately rushes over and they all head over to the church together. We learn that Joanne was 55. Um, she was full of life. Um, her All of her kids describe her as being the best mom with the warmest heart. And it was very important to Joanne to have a, night, a tight-knit, close relationship with her children. Kelly, the middle child, said that growing up, their house was the place to be. She threw the best parties and she loved seeing her kids having fun with their friends. John, Joanne's brother, said Joanne was his favorite sister and the closest person to him in his life, and she was literally all he had. John and Joanne's three children pull up to the church, and they come about a chaotic scene. They just thought like, oh, they found my mom's car. Let's go head over there. But when they get there, there are police everywhere. There's police tape around the car. There's a helicopter. There's a diving team. They soon realize this is way bigger than any of them could have ever anticipated. Upon entering the scene, they learn that the car was locked and that the keys were nowhere to be found. The cell phone was missing and her purse was in the front seat. When Michelle saw and learned that her mother's purse was in the car, her heart sank. This was not at all like her mother. And... I can relate to this. I never leave my purse in the car. So I immediately turned to my husband and I said, if I ever go missing and my purse is in the car, you should immediately like know that something is up because literally it bought, I don't know if it's like my New York city upbringing, but it literally boggles my mind why someone would leave their purse in their car, especially like out in the open, like not concealed under a blanket or a coat or anything. Funny story, this is a detour, bear with me. We went and saw um, the Christmas lights downtown one year with Brian's parents, and we rode downtown all together in one car. I think my in-laws like met us at my house, and then we drove down together. Um, But for my mother-in-law's birthday, we had all, all the siblings had gone in on this beautiful designer purse. She'd never had a designer purse before, and we wanted to treat her. I think it was her 50th birthday, so we wanted to like treat her with something like super nice and useful that she would use all the time. And I was like, hey, I love your purse. Huh? Huh? And so we park the car in the parking garage at City Creek Mall. It's this really big mall that's down there. Um, and we go and we do our thing and we go shopping and we have some hot chocolate and we can go see the lights. And when we get back to the car, I see my mother-in-law's designer purse sitting on top of the back seat with no effort to conceal it or anything. And I was like, Kara, did you leave your purse in the car the whole time? And she was like, oh, yeah. And I was like, you cannot do this, Kara. This is a designer purse. Someone totally could have broken my car window to get in here and get that. And she was like, oh, I guess you're right. (laughs) Um, Also, my cousin um, had his car broken into for a Walmart bag that he left in the back of his car one night. And the criminal at that time got away with like an assortment of cereal. So I'm sure in the end it was really worth it. But my cousin still had to pay for his car to be fixed, like the window to get fixed. So 
you just, you can never be too careful. Okay. Just if you learn nothing from this episode, other than that, you can never be too careful. Everyone was combing the church grounds inside and out, but it had now been three hours since Joanne had last been seen. And so things were not looking optimistic. Things were not looking good. Being so close to the Canadian border, the Coast Guard came in and, like I said, there was helicopter divers, cops combing the lake, attempting to find Joanne either dead but hopefully still alive. Um, They were really hoping that they'd be able to find her and save her. At this point, the girls are like, why are you searching the lake? And it's at this point that the cops share with the family that they believe Joanne went across the street and voluntarily walked into the lake in an attempt to take her own life. Michelle heard this and was like, no, 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 no way. There's just no way. For starters, we know that Joanne was incredibly happy. She was cheerful and she was super cautious. Michelle believed that there was just no way that she would have walked into the lake when it was 12 degrees outside. The lake was partially frozen. It was only like two to three feet deep at its deepest point. And so the water was pretty clear too. So if Joanne was in there, it should have been pretty easy to find her. There's also like no current in this lake. So it's pretty stagnant. So if she had gone in there, either because she slipped or because she had committed suicide, she should still be there. People don't just like kill themselves and disappear into thin air. But police say that there was no evidence that Joanne had gotten into an altercation around the car. So this was the only, this was the direction that they were going to be heading in. At 4 a.m., the search was called off. They towed the car and they stopped searching the water for a time. Uh, Richard Rosati, a detective, said there were no usable prints anywhere on the car, which seems a little bit weird to me because it makes sense that there would be no usable prints of somebody that didn't belong to the car, but when you're in your car, you're touching like a bunch of things. So I don't know why there weren't any prints. But anyways, it was the conjecture of the police at this time that this was a suicide. Let's close the book. Let's wash our hands of it. Let's get a baked CD in the oven, people. And let's just like move on with our life. Joanne worked at a local boutique in a rich area. It was a small town feel. Everybody knows everybody Joanne's social life was having lunch with girlfriends, having dinners for friends and family. She had a very active social life, and so she had a lot of friends. And when Joanne disappeared, it was the end of the world for a lot of people. The community of friends and family all banded together, and they searched abandoned buildings. They searched dumpsters, just anywhere that she could be. Police searched the lake extensively for three days, and then after that, uh, they hired some divers who looked for another three days. So six days total searching the lake. And like I said, this is a very low current lake, and it's not very deep. So when, and then I guess when Joanne went missing, she was wearing all black. So if she had been in the lake, it should have been pretty easy to spot her. William, a diver, said that there was nothing to indicate that she had even ever entered the water, and they conducted one of the most thorough searches that he and his team had ever done. He says she was not in there. This is when Joanne's three children knew that someone had taken Joanne. They knew that their mother had definitely been met with foul play. There was no suicide note. She had no mental illnesses that were known of, and she wasn't taking like any medications that would have made her more prone to suicidal thoughts. She was a devout Catholic, and um, if you know about the Catholic Church and many religions, I don't know why they always like specify like, oh, because she was a Catholic, she would never commit suicide. Lots of religions don't condone suicide. Um, it's typically frowned upon in. Um, mainstream religions. So one of Joanne's friends said that she had seen Joanne shortly before she disappeared and that she had seemed totally normal. She did not seem sad or off or paranoid, nothing. In fact, they had even made plans to hang out again in a few days. And that is like a sign that somebody may be suicidal if they stop making plans. So I think that that's probably why she brought it up. 
Sal Rastrelli is a private investigator who was hired by Michelle after the police ruled the death a suicide, even though they hadn't even found a body yet, which is stupid. Um, Sal said that he has traveled all over the country assisting police officers and families, and one thing he has seen is that time and time again, police officers will approach a scene similar to this one and right off the bat be convinced that it's a suicide. And then any efforts after that point go towards proving the theory that it was a suicide instead of examining the evidence that they have access to and seeing where it leads them. They're just trying to shove like square pieces into a circle puzzle. Doesn't work. When Sal looked at the photographs of the scene, he said that the prints that the police found, like the footprints and the butt prints and the handprints, they could have been from anybody. They didn't even um, take a 90-degree photograph, which is super elementary, um, and that way you can take the 90-degree photograph with the scale of the footprint, and then you can enlarge it and like see it, the footprint in its actual size. So they didn't do that. So they have no idea if these footprints could have even logically been from Joanne's foot, it literally could have been anybody who had been in that area earlier that day or even since the last time it had snowed. And like, this is a road, people walk on it and it has like a beautiful view of a lake. It's quite possible that somebody was like walking along this road, was like, oh, I'm going to sit here for a little bit. And now they're just assuming that that's Joanne's butt prints. That's Joanne's hand prints. That's Joanne's footprints. It could have been anybody. When Joanne went to church that night, she was wearing four-inch heel boots. Sal reenacts the scene with a woman who is wearing boots similar to Joanne's. And even with his help, and even though they're actually recreating this in the spring or summer, there's no snow, it is difficult for the both of them. Uh, There is no way that Joanne could have worn these four-inch stiletto boots and not fallen on her butt and slid into the water. There's no evidence to support that there was a slip and then a fall. Sal had been, has been doing this for 30 years, and he says that there's no way that he can tell if something is a suicide in five minutes or less. But Apparently, the Gross Police Department have a crystal ball because that is what they're claiming that they're able to do. Michelle took her mom's disappearance into her own hands. As the oldest, she felt an obligation to do something, and she hired out as many people as she could um, because she believed that the police department was literally just trying to shove her mother's disappearance and death under the rug. And her body hadn't even been found yet at this point, and they were just stopping cold turkey. She developed a timeline of what her mother had been doing a couple of hours before she went missing. So apparently at 6 p.m., Joanne dropped Michael, her youngest son, off at home. She told him that she was going to go fill up her car with gas. At 6.25, she arrives at a gas station, which kind of seems a little bit of a long time to me, but the episode doesn't comment on that at all, so I don't know if that's to be like a cause for concern For me, it is, but I don't really know the layout of Gross Point. Um, A gas attendant fills Joanne's car for her, and this attendant has apparently known Joanne for years, and he said that he had not noticed anything unusual about their exchange. Joanne seemed to be her cheerful, chipper self. She seemed to be in high spirits, just like she always was when they talked. At 7 o'clock, Joanne attends a church service, and it was very routine for her to go. Anytime that she had time to go, she would go to the prayer service. And when she went, there were only about 10 to 15 people, so it was kind of a small crowd. And at 7.15, she departed the service when it ended. Michelle hired Bill Randall, a retired FBI agent, to assist with the case. Bill got phone records immediately. He wanted to know who she had been talking to before her disappearance. So apparently the week prior, Joanne had called a number several times. It was a private investigator. So he got in touch with this other private investigator. And apparently she had left a voicemail for him asking for help because she believed that she was being followed by a person or persons unknown. And she was a little bit freaked out about it. Michelle says in the weeks leading up to her disappearance, her mom did seem more nervous and cautious. 
John, Joanne's brother, said that a few weeks before Joanne disappeared, he asked Joanne what was up because she seemed a little bit off to him. They were really close. He could tell when something was bothering her, but she wouldn't disclose anything, and he found that really weird. Um, He said it almost felt like she was withholding information because if she told him, she could be putting her family in jeopardy. And guys, if you ever get in a situation like this, let someone know what is going on. So if something does happen to you, people have some semblance of an idea where they need to start. And okay, maybe you don't want to physically tell someone. Maybe the reason that you're paranoid or whatever is embarrassing. Maybe it's like a secret that you thought you were going to take to your grave or whatever. I don't know. But okay, so you don't want to tell somebody physically. Leave a note in your diary. write a note and put it in a safety deposit box at a bank or something. You've got to do something. Don't just leave everybody hanging. Bill contacted a lot of people, um, including some people at Joanne's work. Many coworkers stated that starting on January 7th, Joanne started getting a lot of phone calls at work and she would step away from others to take these phone calls. And her coworkers found this to be extremely uncommon and unlike her. Normally, she would just answer the phone and have a conversation and hang up. And it wasn't a lot of phone calls coming in. But this, apparently a week before, she was getting tons of phone calls and she would step away. Joanne indicated she was being followed. Someone might have been intercepting her mail. She believed that her phone was being tapped. Michelle said that her mom didn't like going places alone. And one of the only places she felt safe at was church, but okay. I hope I don't come off as rude or insensitive or like a jerk, but if Joanne had a history of this kind of paranoia, like only feel safe at church, couldn't this perhaps be an untreated mental illness? I don't know. I mean, I'd obviously need more information certainly more information that we're getting in this episode, but I mean, the coworkers are saying that it started on January 7th. And if that's true, then that makes me think it's someone harassing her. But then Michelle is telling me that Joanne has always felt paranoid and that's different. Anyway, I need more info, I guess, but just something that I've been rolling around in my mind. A witness at the church said that she saw an alarm on the Lexus Uh, go off like Joanne's Lexus and that it had gone off for like maybe five minutes and she didn't think anything of it um, because I don't think anybody really cares when they hear an alarm on a car go off anymore. That's why you have to yell fire people. Do not rely on your car alarm because nobody gives a crap about it. You hear it all the time. You don't even look anymore. Another witness said she had left the church at 725 She had felt uneasy because it was really dark that night, and she had actually been one of the last people to leave the service. So when she exited the doors of the church, she actually made a point to look up and down the driveway just to, like, assess her surroundings, smart lady. And she said that she did not see any cars, including where Joanne's car would later be found. That is weird. So this would infer that Joanne's car had left and then later been brought back. That seems very suspect to me. So the car left, and then it came back. Why? What happened in between those two times? 70 days later, on a Saturday, Michelle got a call from a detective. The detective disclosed to her that two fishermen had found her mother's body near Boblo Island, near Canada, Ontario, Canada, almost 35 miles from where Joanne's car had been abandoned. Everyone's worst fear had been actualized. The glue of their family, Joanne, was dead. It was a huge loss. They were devastated, but they wanted justice and they were going to get right back to work. Scott Lewis is another private investigator Michelle hired to get a fresh set of eyes on this case. And I don't know if I've mentioned this yet. I don't think I've mentioned it yet, but a huge applause and shout out for Michelle and her siblings for taking matters into their own hands and getting experts on this. I'm sure it's tough getting a PI to take your case 
And then, I mean, it's probably expensive, right? I mean, I don't really know because I've never needed their services. Jinx knock on wood. But I imagine if you're getting good ones, and it seems like they were because one is a retired FBI agent, that this is not cheap. But she's doing it to get justice for her mother. And I love Michelle's drive and determination and grit. Michelle is incredible. So Michelle and Scott, they take a boat ride from the place where Joanne allegedly got into the water by the church. And then they take a boat ride to where she's found. And it is an extremely long journey. And even Michelle mentions it. She's like, you know, when you see those two points on a map, you don't think that's very long. And then when you drive, it doesn't seem very long either. But going on a boat, which is faster than the speed of a body, I'm assuming, in a water, like going with the current, it's really, really long. Especially because there was no current where she got in. And that is kind of a stretch to me. Before taking the case, Scott told Michelle, I'm going to look over the files that you send me, and if there's even a chance that this could be a suicide, I'm not taking this case because I don't do suicides. I do homicides. But if I think it's a homicide, I will gladly take it. Needless to say, Scott took the case, and he says that there is not a doubt in his mind that this was not a suicide. To begin with, who fills their gas tank on their way to commit suicide? Why would you spend so much money? Like, it's expensive to fill a car. Why would you waste like $40, $50 if you're just going to kill yourself anyways? It doesn't make any sense. He says if Joanne had shot herself or perhaps locked herself in the garage with the car running, he would buy that. But no one fills their car with gas and then purposefully drowns drowns themselves. And that's what he's saying anyways. He doesn't believe for one second that she walked out of the church and just walked into the lake. He believes that the divers would have found her. No private investigator that Michelle has hired believes that Joanne could have entered the lake at that spot and traveled 35 miles. It's impossible. It is possible that she might have entered the lake in a different spot and that could have happened, but not from that spot where the police are saying that she came in. Not possible. Michelle says that she is haunted When she thinks about the last thoughts that her mom had, she hopes that her mother was not scared. Um, She's just terrified about the final thoughts that her mom had entering the water, knowing that she wasn't going to be able to make it. The Emmys report is here and it's pretty, I mean, it's not really graphic graphic, but I'm going to try and keep it PG anyways. So he believes that the cause of death is drowning, but I looked at a copy of the report the Emmy report on ScreenRant.com, and there was no water found in her lungs, which makes me think that this Emmy doesn't know what the definition of drowning is. So I'm already going to take the rest of what he has to say with a minuscule grain of salt. He says that she had been in the water for quite some time because there was like algae growing on her legs when she was found. Um, There were two small bruises on her left upper arm, and he said that it could represent somebody like grabbing her, But it also could be something that she, like, did to herself, like, bonked into something or whatever. And it's the Emmy's belief that it happened anti-mortem, so before her death. The Emmy says Joanne's death has been, he left it as undetermined because they don't have enough evidence to point in one direction or the other. Michelle says her mom's purse was torn, but police don't think it was consistent with a robbery. They just acted like it wasn't a big deal, but they never fingerprinted it or searched it for any DNA, so I don't really know why they are as confident as they are. Michelle says another unusual thing was that when her mother was found, her car keys were in the coat pocket of her jacket, and that's not the unusual part. But Michelle says that the coat pockets were zipped up and the jacket itself was zipped up all the way to her mother's chin, which apparently to Michelle is extremely unusual because Joanne never zipped up her coat. She just would wear sweaters or scarves and leave the coat unzipped. She liked the way that that looked better. And personally, I do too. I don't really like to zip up my coat. Two things were missing, her cell phone and her rosary. Both were always in her coat pocket. Another thing was that her shoes were intact with no scuff marks on the bottoms. And 
like I told you before, this like lake was really shallow and it had a really, really rocky bottom. So there should have been scuffs at the bottom of her shoes if we're going to believe that she walked to like the center of the lake where it wasn't two to three feet deep. There should be some scuffs on her shoes. Um, apparently none of her clothes really looked like they had endured the journey down the lake the way that the police officers are saying that it happened. Her clothes should have been worse looking. Michelle believes her mom was abducted while leaving the church, pushed into her own car where the abductor drove the car, rendered her unconscious and killed her, and then later, and then like disposed of the body and then later returned the car to the church so that it would be found. And then that individual or individual staged a scene of the butt prints and purposefully left the purse in the car so that it would appear to be a suicide. During a deposition of the police department due to their stupidity handling this case, an internal affairs officer asked a lieutenant, Keith Wazak, if he found it at all suspicious that a witness had claimed that Joanne's car had not been there at 725 and then shortly before 9 o'clock it had returned. And this idiot lieutenant who is obviously just saying what he's been told to say has the audacity to say that nothing seems suspicious to him at all about that are you kidding me so a car is gone but now it's back but the lady who was driving the car is missing and you don't think anything's a little bit weird about that you lying you are lying so hard right now who told you that they were gonna fire you if you didn't say that because no person with a working brain could learn about this information and not admit that it's a little freaking weird you have to watch the internal affairs interview just for that part because the entire time that they're asking this guy was his name again what is his name again? Dumb Keith. Freaking Keith. The entire time that they're asking Keith this question, he's like shifting in his seat from side to side. Like you can just tell that he's like thinking like, you know what your boss said. Say no. Say no. Whatever they say, say no. Don't mess up. And then when he um, answers the question, he's just like, no. And then he just like starts shifting again. Like he's wondering if the this BS that he's delivering is being believed or not. All right, so maybe the internal affairs guy believes it, although I don't think that he did, but I don't. And I think I can say we don't, we don't believe in one minute of this. We don't believe in this guy for one minute, guys. Am I right? One of the police, oh, sorry. One of the private investigators said it's most likely someone Joanne knew that was following her and did this to her. Initially, Michelle told investigators about several potential suspects. First was her father. Her mother and father were separated at the time of their disappearance. They had been married for 25 years. Michelle says that her dad was really angry when Joanne left him. Michelle asked her dad to interview with one of the PIs that she hired, but he refused to do so. Michelle says another person of interest would be Joanne's brother, John. Not that he himself did it or even knew about it at the time, but perhaps it was someone looking to send John a message. John was in the real estate business. Um, he sold like commercial property. And because of the financial crisis of 2008, John had hit some hard times like a lot of us did. And apparently he owed quite a few people a lot of money. Um, Joanne had bailed him out a couple of times. He says that he doesn't know for certain that this was caused by someone who might have been wanting to get back at him. He really, really hopes not. But that's one of, another one of the major factors that's pulling him to find out the truth either way. He said, either way, if it's my fault, I want to know. If it's not my fault, I want to know. He does say that he wishes if someone had had a problem with him or wanted money from him, that they would have harmed him directly instead of harming his sister. Um, Michelle's number one suspect, however, 
is a cousin, Joanne's first cousin, Tim, who also happens to be a former cop, which might explain why the cops are acting so, oh, what? I don't know. Apparently, there was a strained relationship between the two, uh, Joanne and Tim, at the time of her disappearance and death. After Tim and Joanne's grandmother died, there was a dispute about how the inheritance should be distributed. There was a family, there was a lawsuit, and ever since that time, the family had just, like, never been the same. Tim says that the last time he talked to Joanne was October 2009, but Michelle says that she vividly recalls a time just like a week or two before her mom went missing that her mom and Tim had gotten into a screaming match over the phone. Michelle says that she was in the other room when this took place, so she could only hear her mom's side of the conversation. She couldn't hear what Tim was saying, but she did say that when her mother, uh was talking to Tim, she was like, how did you get my number? Leave me and my family alone and never call me here ever again. And when her mom got off the phone, she went into the room where Michelle was and said, if anything ever happens to me, look to Tim. Oh, shoot. Remember when I mentioned earlier, tell someone something so your loved ones will know where to start? Well, This is a red flag if I've ever seen one. A huge crimson 100-foot flag that says, Tim did it. I knew I liked Joanne. She is a smart cookie. And with Tim being a cop, it makes sense why she would be scared. He would have more knowledge than a regular person on how to manipulate a crime scene and make it look a certain way. So I'm not saying Tim did it. Because legally I'm not allowed to, but uh, he is looking good for it. Maybe. But y'all know what I mean, right? Wink, wink. Uh, The private investigator said there was a lot of dislike among family members, which makes it super difficult to him to really get to the root issue and like try and figure out like who really could have done this and what was just like dumb family spats. Apparently, Tim did not attend the funeral. He said that he was asked not to come and pay his respects by John. Um, He didn't want Tim coming to, like, cause a controversy or cause, like, any family conflict. Um, Tim harbored bad feelings for John. They don't really get into why. I'm assuming money problems, most likely, because I feel like that is something that can really destroy a family is, like, abuse and money. Those are the things that split families apart. Um, Joanne had been a mentor to John, especially this battle that he was fighting with Tim. She attempted to be a peacekeeper and a mediator between the two of them, but that in itself could be a full-time job. Um, Even though Michelle doesn't know the context, she knows her mother had a fear of Tim. And now her mom is gone. So what else is she supposed to think? The private investigator did say that he looked into Tim and that he was never able to find anything to directly point in Tim's direction, but he wasn't ever able to find anything that didn't point in Tim's direction either. So just a bit of a limbo. It is still the conjecture of the police that Joanne committed suicide by entering the water and allowing herself to drown even though there's no water in her freaking lungs. They think because of John's stress, um, like the the feud and the family tension, these are the stressors that would lead to her suicide. And while I'm not going to say that this is impossible, in this particular instance, I don't think that this theory holds water for me at least. You guys let me know. On-screen text reveals in the episode now... um, why there have been so many depositions on tape with police officers in Gross Point. I was kind of wondering, like, why do they have all these recordings of different police officers asking them all these questions? So apparently Michelle Romaine and her family, like her two siblings and her uncle, sued the Gross Point to pol- the Gross Point Police Department in the city of Gross Point for an alleged attempt to cover up Joanne's murder. The lawsuit and its subsequent appeal um, were dismissed. However, the U.S. District Court judge stipulated that there are disputed facts in this matter that are very disturbing and to this day remain unsolved. 
Kelly says that she really misses her mom, but she still feels her around her. So she doesn't feel like her mother's really gone, if that makes sense. John uh, keeps a rosary that Joanne gave him because it was her greatest wish for him to find his faith. Um, Her faith was really important to her and she wanted to share that with her brother. He says he'll never stop fighting until the people he believes are responsible are where they belong and he thinks that that's prison. And I wonder who he's talking about. (laughs) Tim. (laughs) Michelle says she misses everything. Mostly the warmth and the love and the comfort. She says that that is something you really can never get back. And that's the episode. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Joanne Matuk Romaine, please leave an anonymous tip at unsolved.com. Here are a few extra things I learned while researching this case online, and these were things that were not found in the Netflix episode. For starters, Michelle said she was very suspicious when the police came to her house and inquired about her mother Joanne missing because they had found an abandoned car in the parking lot of the church. Apparently, the car Joanne had been driving that day was Michelle's and it was registered to Michelle. So if the police officers had run the plate, Michelle Romaine's name would have come up. So that's who they should have been asking for when they came by to the house, not her mother. She said she might have believed that they had found an ID in the purse that was left in the car, but she distinctly remembers being there when the police officers jimmied the car door open. Also, the estate left behind um, by the grandmother was not like some measly inheritance. It's not like the family was fighting over like $10,000, $100,000. It was $20 million that was supposed to be divvied up equally. Bill, who was uh, John and Joanna's brother, um, was the executor of the estate. And shortly after the money was dispersed, Joanne and John accused Bill and their sister Rosemary of stealing shares of the money. Another thing, it was insinuated in the episode that Joanne left her husband, David, because she was just fed up and she just wanted to be happy. But other sources that I found claim that he left her for her best friend. And since Joanne's death, the two have since married. That's not saying he's guilty, but it's just a little weird. I don't really know why they didn't disclose that in the episode. It just seems a little bit strange. Anyways, Also, the episode kind of paints John, Joanne's brother, as this black sheep who could just never get his life together or catch a break. However, I read on a source, I read um, in this article, that at age 29, John Matuk was the founder of Remtech, which is a multi-million dollar company. So there could definitely be a reason for someone to abduct his sister in order to get a ransom from him. He's not just this pole-playing oaf that they depicted him as in the episode. Unsolved Mysteries zeroes in on the sibling dynamic between Joanne and John, but doesn't provide much information about the brother that they once sued, Bill. Um, In the WDIV TV report, if anything ever happens to me, Michelle recalls her mother's chilling statement that Tim Matuk should be investigated if anything bad should ever happen to her. Michelle goes on to explain that Joanne letter, later met with her brother Bill at their family's business, it's called Woods Wholesale Wine, and spoke to him about the threatening comments that Tim had been making towards her. Um, Michelle claims that she dropped her mother off at the winery, and when her mother came out, she was more freaked out afterwards than when she had gone in. And states, I don't know what my mom saw. I don't know what she heard. She just wanted to go to the church immediately and pray, so I took her there. A few days later, Joanne called a security company, as noted in the Unsolved Mystery, and one week later she disappeared after attending a prayer service. In the present, Woods Wholesale Wine is going very strong, according to a 2019 feature. Also, after Michelle and her siblings sued the police department in the city, they were allowed access to the police documents and they saw 
that a dismissed witness had seen a car parked next to Joanne's that night that she went missing, and the witness says he knows for a fact who the driver was. He said he recognized the driver as none other than Tim Matuk, but police sent him away and deemed him to be a non-credible witness. It's also interesting, funny, poetic justice, perhaps, that members of the Gross Point community pitched in money to have a private plane flown over Tim's house with a banner that read, Bill Matuk, wait until the public finds out who you really are. Oh my gosh. (laughs) If Tim didn't do it, I feel so bad. But if he did, man, this community is so BA. I love it it. After hearing about this episode and the other information, I was able to compile, what do you make of this case? Do you think Joanne took her own life? Do you think something much more sinister is at play here? Do you think it was her estranged husband, David, her brother, John, or her cousin, Tim? Do you think it's someone completely different, maybe random? Could it have been a murder for hire? And that's why all these people have alibis. What is the motive? Is it just the family inheritance or is it something much deeper, something much darker? Do you think we'll ever find answers? Let me know by posting a comment on my latest post at Mystery Still Unsolved on Instagram. I would love, love, love to chat with you and hear your thoughts. Thanks again for joining me today. I appreciate you all so much. I hope that you all have an amazing week. I hope to see you over on the Instagram. It would make my day. Join me next week when together we'll discover, did someone ever place a useful tip? Has justice prevailed or is the mystery still unsolved?